Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Well, as you uh, may have guessed at this point, um, we're working our way through the Old Testament, and today we're talking about Moses. So if that, if that hasn't been clear to this point today, so um, I just want to uh, give you guys a little heads up uh, before we get started today. Uh, something we've kind of committed to uh, with this series is reading a lot of the story and uh, being kind of text heavy uh, for the next, uh, for this series. So I'm going to be reading some big pictures, uh, big pieces of uh, scripture today. Um, so I just want to encourage you to uh, just kind of commit your ears and uh, your eyes to the, to the board. Uh, uh, Brian bailed me out. I didn't have the slides ready for the first service, so he bailed me out. And so you can read along with us today. Um, so just kind of commit that we're going to do some heavy text reading today, but um, we're doing Moses and we're doing Moses in 30 minutes. So, and Moses is uh, a big character in the whole uh, faith story. He covers five books. Uh, he wrote four of them. So we got a lot of material to cover. And uh, so with all that, we're going to dive right in. I'm going to read some, uh, so, some scripture to start out and then I'm going to pray for us. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have, they would have had opportunity to return. Remember Abraham, we did Abraham two weeks ago, left his homeland, that was how this whole thing started, um, and, and headed out on a journey. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Moses' parents hid him from, for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, who had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and, and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Father God, um, you were so big. You were so amazing. And your story is so huge and it's so glorious. And uh, we can't, begin to even wrap our brain around it in 30 minutes, God. But what I do pray that we somehow wrap our brain around, we wrap our heart around, is that as big as your story is, 
you still hold affection for us at the center of your heart. It's so mind-blowing, God. So I just ask for your spirit to come and walk us through this, this message, God. These are the words you have for us, and we cannot receive them nor understand them without your spirit. So we ask that you come and teach us. Amen. So as we're taking the time to look through the stories and heroes of our faith, I want to take just a second to get a big picture understanding of what biblical narrative is or biblical story, because that's what we're, we're looking at. We looked at Abraham. We looked at Joseph. Today, we're looking at Moses. We're looking at story in the Old Testament. So to do that, I want to reference one of my favorite books. It's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by uh, Douglas Stewart and Gordon Fee. And I highly recommend uh, that you own this book, uh, that it sits right next to your Bible, because it is just an invaluable resource to begin to understand um, what's really going on in Scripture. It's just some real nuts and bolts, grassroots stuff. So I'd really encourage you, as you study the Word, to, to use a resource like this book. So I want to read some quotes from this book that are going to help us get an understanding of what biblical narrative is about. Fee and Stewart say, Failure to understand both the reason and character of Hebrew narrative has called many, caused many Christians to pass... <coughs> excuse me. Let's start that over again. <laughs> Failure to understand both the reason and character of Hebrew narrative has called many Christians in the past to read the Old Testament story very poorly, which is what we don't want to do in this, in this series. If you're a Christian, the Old Testament is your spiritual history. The promises and calling of God to Israel are your historical promises and calling. One crucial thing to keep in mind as you read any Hebrew narrative is the presence of God in the narrative. In any biblical narrative, God is the ultimate character. So even though we're studying Moses today, we studied Abraham, we studied Joseph, we're ultimately looking at God. God is the ultimate character in these stories. God is the supreme hero of the story. Catch this. To miss this dimension of the narrative is to miss the perspective of the narrative altogether. If we don't get God at the center, we don't get the story at all. One of my main hopes for us as we continue through these hero series is that we come to truly see and understand the Old Testament narratives are about God and his glory. They're telling us his story. They're not so much about teaching us instructional principles for living good lives. Though we may extract a lot of good principles, that's not really the intention of these stories. Their real intention is showing us God's plan of saving us and restoring his people. As we move into the story of Moses, there are several things that we have to keep in mind. First of all, Moses is believed to be the author of the first five books of the Bible. We've already done Genesis, um, four of which cover his story. It kind of gives you a breadth of what role he played in the Old Testament and in our history. So today we're really just going to do a flyover. We're going to get a big picture view of who Moses is and what was going on in his, in his um, writing. 
The second thing is that we, can, that we need to understand today is that we cannot tell Moses' story without telling the story of the nation of Israel. For almost 100 years, Moses and Israel's stories are pretty much one and the same. So we want to try and hit the highlights so we can see the big picture of what God did through Moses in his lifetime. And we want to see how these pieces of Israel's history is so integral to understanding our faith and where we find ourselves here and now as God's people. First thing we have to do is set the stage for Moses. And to do this, we need to understand the time of transition for the nation of Israel between Joseph and Moses. And we did, like I said, we did Joseph last week. If you weren't here, if you didn't hear that, um, if you're out partying for 4th of July and you missed it, then go to the podcast and hear it because you need um, it's, it's so crucial to understand Abraham and Joseph to see where we're going. Um, so we need to understand what happened to the nation of Israel between Joseph and Moses, because that's a period of about 400 years. A lot happened. And so I'm going to read a, a big piece of text here that helps us understand that. And it's Exodus, uh, chapter one, verses six through 22. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increasing in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptian leaders are starting to get really intimidated and fearful of this huge nation that's growing inside their boundaries. So what they do is they put slave masters over the, over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Sifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them in deliver, on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, then kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. When the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I, you know, I believe it. It's definitely clever. So it worked. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people, this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I think it'd be safe to say there's a little bit of tension between the Israelites and the Egyptians at this point. 
The Egyptians had forgotten that they owned their existence to one of the Israel, Israelites' main patriarchs, Joseph. He saved them by managing all of their wealth and their supplies uh, during the famine so that their nation uh, could carry on. And they've obviously forgotten that. So not only have they taken the Israels as slaves, they've attempted to keep them from growing as a nation. Probably not realizing they're going against the covenant of God in the meantime. The next thing we need to look at is Moses' rise to leadership. If we want to understand the story, uh, we kind of see the gap that happened and we realize that Moses is going to come into that place of their captivity. So we want to look a little bit and see how Moses got to that place of leadership. So we understand this is a short version and I'm leaving out a lot of details. And uh, I just apologize if I leave your favorite piece of the Moses story out, but I'm pretty sure I'm probably going to do it today um, since we're, we're trying to look real big picture. Um, we can tell from Pharaoh's decree that we just read that Moses was supposed to be murdered as a newborn. His parents hid him as long as they could. So this kind of follows after the part I just read. I'm paraphrasing. When he was three months old, his mom placed him in a basket in the Nile where Pharaoh's daughter could come, would come to bathe. And so Pharaoh's daughter found Moses floating in this basket, covered in pitch, covered in tar. And um, she raised Moses as her own child. Now, this is significant because it means that Moses now is adopted into Egyptian royalty. Well, when Moses, once he turned to an adult, the events started to change for him. One day he saw he was out in in the kingdom and he saw an Egyptian man beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And uh, it upset him and he murdered the Egyptian. And now once Pharaoh found out about this, he tried to have Moses killed For the second time, Moses then fled to the land of Midian, where he started a family and was a shepherd. Now, in this time, uh, Moses encountered God in the burning bush. This is the first time that he really had that experience, like uh, Sue was talking about and uh, Pastor Shannon so elegantly displayed when Moses walked walked into the glory of God. And so it was in the form of a burning bush. This is where Moses received the instructions to go and lead Israel out of the captivity from the Egyptians. I want to take a pause here real quick before I go any further. And I want to take a look at a few examples of how Moses is actually telling the Christ story. Because we're obviously looking at God. God is about Christ. Christ is, the, uh, the, is who the scripture is all about from beginning to end. So we want to take a moment to delve into how Moses is actually telling us about Christ. And I'm just going to pull out a few similarities. In Exodus chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2, we see both were supposed to be murdered as babies by political leaders who felt threatened by their existence. Both were royalty. Moses was an adopted child of Pharaoh. Jesus, a little higher ranking, was the son of God. But both gave up their rights to rescue a people that could not save themselves. A final example of how Moses points to Christ is in the phrase, the word. Now in John 1, 1, the author calls Jesus the word. He starts out the passage. He starts out the book that way. It says, and what, what he means by that phrase, the word, is he means that Jesus is the total expression 
of everything God desires to say to mankind. Now, likewise, Moses was God's voice to the people of Israel. And we'll see more about what that means later on. We're going to talk a little bit more about what mediation means. Also, Moses authored the first five books of the Bible, often referred to the books of Moses. That's where we're kind of camping out uh, today. So Jesus was the word at the beginning of all things. Moses was the first one to put the words of God into writing and begin our scriptures. I also want to take a second to show the type of person Moses was and the intimacy he had with God. It's so important to understand his character and his relationship with God for able to understand the influence he had over the people of Israel or with the people of Israel. First, when God calls him in Exodus 3, 4, God says Moses' name twice. Moses, Moses, from the burning bush. Now, this is very significant in that culture in that time because of the language of the day, double, double meaning of a word denoted close friendship or familiarity. Christ did it on the cross when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi. He cried out his father's name twice, denoting very close, intimate relationships. So God was saying, Moses, I know you well already when he called him. In Numbers 12, Moses' brother Aaron, his sister Miriam, they come against Moses because Moses married a woman of a race they did not agree with. And his jazz was so clear to point out in the first service, she was a black woman and his, uh, his siblings didn't agree with that union. The ma- this passage does not say how Moses responded to their allegations, but it does say in verse three, now that Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, Moses was humble, but this tick got off. And the passage also goes on to let us know that God came to bat for Moses when his family came up against him. Verse 5, chapter um, 12 of Numbers. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Aaron and Miriam. And I don't know if you have any recollections of being a kid and getting in trouble and like trying to hide under your bed, you know, and your parents come and knock on the door. They obviously know where you are. Um, this was God knocking on the door of, my, of Aaron and Miriam's tent uh, saying, I know I've got something to deal with you with. And Moses, and then when the two stepped forward, I can't imagine the fear. He said, listen to my words. When there are prophets of the Lord among you, I reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. And when and why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and they left and he left them. Now, the significance of this term face to face in verse eight is an indication that God spoke plainly and clearly to Moses without mediation. Moses, this term lets us understand that Moses was the mediator. 
God reminded Aaron and Miriam that Moses was unique among all people in his ability to hear clearly the voice of God and to see his glory. How could they even imagine coming against such a man? The next thing I want to talk about is though I'm, even though I'm kind of getting ahead in the Moses story, because I think the true testimony to the man of Moses was in his funeral. You know what they say? The true test and tell of how a person lived their life is who shows up at their funeral and what they say. So let's look at Moses' funeral in Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died here in Moab. As the Lord had said, he buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now those two phrases, he buried him and no one knows where his grave is, are a pretty clear indication that God dug Moses' grave himself and laid him in the ground. Now, I don't know what more we could say about Moses than the fact that God did Moses' eulogy personally and dug his grave. I don't know about you, but I love cowboy movies. And uh, a lot of people, you know, if you think about a weekend, uh, some people like to veg out all weekend and watch a movie series and they pick like Star Trek or they pick... Um, you know, Lord of the Rings or whatever. It, my stay-at-home all-weekend movies is like Lonesome Dove. And uh, one good thing you can count on in any good Western movie is that somebody's going to get buried on the plains, right? You know, it's just going to happen. Indians are going to happen, you know, snake bite, whatever. And um, so every cowboy knows how his life is going to end as a cowboy. You hang around cowboys enough, you know, you're going to end up out in the middle of nowhere, you're going to die. You're going to get buried. Your three or four best friends, your dog, your horse are going to be standing there. Uh, they're going to hang your hat on the, a little stone. Somebody's going to say some nice words. Um, so cowboys know how they're going to go out. I, I don't think Moses probably dreamt that God would be the one standing there in the wilderness around his grave when he went out. Now, phase two... Now, the passage goes on to say, since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. So now that we've taken a brief look at Moses, I want to do a flyby of Exodus and Numbers. I want to point out four of the main events that Moses led the Israelites through and talk briefly about their significance to our faith today. Now, Exodus means the going out or the exit. The first half of the book we pretty much covered is focuses on Moses' call. God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians by administration of the 10 plagues and the subsequent journey of Egypt to Mount Sinai. First half of Moses, uh, first half of Exodus, you got it. Um, second half of the book is God giving a long series of laws that continues right through the next three books of the Bible. 
So in the second half, we get the law, and we also get, in the second half of the book, the provision for tabernacle. And tabernacle is literally the dwelling place of God among his people. So in the second half of the book, we get the law, and we get how God is going to hang out with his people as they travel around the wilderness. If we want to get what Exodus does for us, if we want to look at it properly, we have to understand that it shows the immense immensity of the grace and love of God and demonstrates his plan of salvation for all mankind for all time. When we look at Exodus, we have to understand a few things. First, first things first, God rescued the nation of Israel when they were powerless to rescue themselves. That's crucial to the story. His grace to rescue them preceded any obligation or requirements that he placed on them as a people. This is something that I think often confuses us when we look at Scripture and we look at the Old Testament and we see it's all largely about the law and God dealing with his people. And then we read the New Testament and we see Jesus and and we see the grace and we see the love of Jesus and we kind of go, well, law happened and then grace happened. That's not true at all. It actually, over and over again, example after example, beginning with the creation of man, man didn't do anything to deserve to be created other than God desired to create him. Exodus speaks loud, loudly to the reality that God's grace always precedes God's law. Second, at Mount Sinai, God gives the law. <clears throat> Excuse me. And to try and sum up the law simply is a pretty impossible and bold task, but I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. The law, simply, it is God's gift to the people of showing them the parameters of having a relationship with God. We find its significance in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Check this. Although the whole earth is mine, God's saying this, you, Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that speak to Israel. The law was not a punishment. The Israel was not to punish the Israelites. It was to set them apart as a beacon of life to all the other nations. The fact that, Mo- that God gave the law to Moses to set them apart is a demonstration that God loved all mankind equally and he knew that all men needed an example of holy, righteous, full life living. So he chose the people of Israel, made them the, the administrators of the law so that the rest of the world would have an example of what living in relationship with God would look like and be drawn to God. That's why in 1 Peter 2.9, the Apostle Peter writes to the church. And he reiterates this passage in Exodus. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, we the church are now the, we are the holy nation. We are the set apart people. We are the holy priesthood. The law, showing that the law is not burden the Israelites, just like following Christ, is not to be a burden on us. It is a gift to be set apart from the world 
It is a gift to us that we get to be set apart from the world as a beacon to the world of life and of hope. And if people are set apart and holy because of the law, then God is then able to dwell with his people. And that's where we get tabernacle. We got law. We got the, the outline for uh, how people can interact with God. Now he's able to come and dwell among them and he's able to taper, tabernacle with them. He's able to reside with them. Now, numbers has to do with taking the census or numbering the people. We're skipping on to the next book. This was done to prepare for entering the promised land. The real crux event of numbers happens in chapter 13 and 14. What we see is the people have counted and prepared. They've been counted and prepared to enter the promised land. Spies have been sent into the promised land to scout it out, and they found two things. First, that the land is more plentiful with resources than they could have ever imagined. And second, that the inhabitants of the promised land are really big and mean and scary. Now, all the spies except Caleb and Joshua, they argued that they could not take the land and the people believed them. And the response of the people, and this is how the people responded going to the promised land in Numbers 14, 1 through 4. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we shouldn't choose a leader. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now you can imagine that God is pretty upset about this response because he rescued them. He supplied all their physical needs in the wilderness he provided the means for them to have a relationship. He's come and dwelt among them, and yet they still reject him. He goes on to tell Moses that he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth and start a whole new nation with Moses. And Moses pleads that he wouldn't do that. He pleads for the people of Israel, and God makes a truce with them. And this is in chapter 14, verse 26 in Numbers. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wickedness community grumble against me. I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who has, was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Now that 20 years or older was important because that was the fighting age. And so God says, we took a census, we figured out how many 20 plus people we have. And I'm going to go ahead and let all those people die off before we actually try and go back into the wilderness, into the promised land. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you've rejected. But you, those of you that grumbled and were too scared to go in, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. So for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for the sin and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So we see the Israelites have traveled through the wilderness. They get to the promised land. 
They reject God's desire to take them into the promised land. And so God sends them back into the wilderness to die off until another generation that's able and willing to go into the promised land is raised up. Now we need to look at one more thing about Moses' story as we wrap up here. There's a significant event in Numbers 20, verse 7 through 12. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before you their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Notice the contrast. God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israel, of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now that gives me pause to go, whoa, this man has been leading your people. He's been faithful. He's been walking side by side with you for years. And here he messes up and he like, you said speak and he strikes. I mean, come on. I mean, is, is that really that big of a deal? It really is that big of a deal. And this is why. Because God told Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock, yet in their frustration in Israelites, and in their pride, they struck the rock twice to bring forth water. Now, God told Moses to provide for the people in a way that would bring glory to God. And Moses chose to provide for the people in a way that would bring glory to himself. Why do I finish with what seems to be a downer on Moses? Because it would be easy for us to look at Moses otherwise impeccable leadership career and desire to set him up as an example of how to live our lives. If we did that, we would be making a grave mistake. Why would that be such a mistake to want to pattern our lives after Moses? Quite simply, because that would be idolatry. That would be worshiping the wrong man. Worship team, if you guys want to come on up. While we wrap up here, I want to expand on that a little bit and say what I'm talking about when I say setting up Moses as our example would be idolatry. The book of Matthew was written to, was written for Jewish Christians. Matthew is trying to encourage their faith and their ministry. These Jewish Christians would have been well aware of the story of Moses and the travels in the wilderness. And they would know certain things very well. They would know how long did it take Moses to go up to the mountain to receive the law? 40 days. And what happened while he was there? The Israelites built an idol and worshiped a false god. These Jewish Christians reading the book of Matthew, they would have known how long the spies had gone into the promised land, 40 days. And what happened when they got back, when the spies got back? The people failed to trust God 
and were sent back into the wilderness. How they would have known how long the Israelites went back into the wilderness. 40 years. Hopefully we're catching the 40 pattern here. And what happened to Moses during that time? He was unable to lead the people into the promised land because he attempted to take a piece of God's glory that God intended for himself. Now, early in this book of Matthew, in chapter 4, Matthew writes about Jesus' experience in the wilderness. How long was it? 40 days. And what happened at the end of Jesus' 40 days? He was tested by the devil three times. And all three times he passed the test by quoting the law from the book of Deuteronomy. In Matthew 4.10, we see the final results of Jesus' wilderness test. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. Now, I don't think it's a far stretch at all. In fact, I think it's a pretty clear understanding that the Jews reading the book of Matthew would understand the significance of Jesus' wilderness experience. Now, I want you to see, I don't point out Moses' inadequacy in the wilderness to make me feel better about my sin, nor do I say it to diminish the role, the value of the role that Moses played in our, in our spiritual history. It's not to demean Moses that we end with uh, his, his shortcoming. Instead, I point to Moses' inadequacy Moses' inadequacy, like my speaking inadequacies, I point to Moses' inadequacy so as to elevate Christ's supremacy and highlight the reality of Christ's all-sufficiency. The greatest thing that we can take away from Moses' experience in the wilderness, the greatest thing we can learn about faith in the wilderness is coming away with the confidence that Christ defeated death in the wilderness so that we can live fully and completely in a relationship with God. That's what the wilderness is all about. It's an understanding that Christ completed the journey in the place of the Israelites and in our place. Now we're going to come into a time of communion where we break bread and dip it in juice And for those of you that aren't uh, familiar with this tradition, it's something that we as Christ followers do uh, simply to remind ourselves that of who Jesus is, to remind ourselves that our identity is in Christ. I want to encourage you today, if you're not, if this is all new to you and you're just watching and experience and just seeking, that it's okay just to watch and ask questions and think about what's going on in this symbolic act that we as a a body of believers are going to partake in. But if you are a believer, I would encourage you to come to the table with the reminder that the wilderness has been defeated. And that's why we come to the table. We don't come because Christ is simply sufficient just for the, the many wildernesses we experience in our life day in and day out. 
We understand that we, that we come to the table because Christ is sufficient for the period of wilderness that we're living in right now. Because we as believers, as a group and a body of believers, we are in the wilderness. Not because we don't have Jesus, but because we're not in our permanent home with our Father. So today, we come to the table and remember that though we're in the wilderness, Christ provided a way that we can be in unity for eternity with our Father.